Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing the Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. This podcast is intended for medical professionals. The information is to be used in the context of your own clinical judgment and those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and even though the magic of podcasting may make it seem like we're speaking directly in your ears, this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. David Dragunas is an anesthesiologist in Dallas who made his first venture onto the World Wide Web with the Anesthesia Myths website as a way to help patients tell fact from fiction with regards to anesthesia. We talk about what he wants all physicians, especially those writing surgical clearance letters, to know about anesthesia. We also discuss his podcast, Doctors Unbound, where he interviews physicians who are doing interesting things aside from typical clinical responsibilities. As he curates only the finest guests, I was one of his interviewees a few months ago. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have anesthesiologist, Dr. David Draginas. He's in private practice in the Dallas area, and he's actually had a presence online for a long time. He started out producing a website called Anesthesia Myths, which we're going to talk about today. Originally, he produced it for his patients to help them understand anesthesia better and obviously dispel myths, but we're going to be talking about anesthesia myths for physicians. And currently, he's also a podcaster as well. He has Doctors Unbound, where he talks to different doctors who are, as you would expect, unbound by physician stereotypes. They do things that are really out of the box and unexpected for for typical physicians. So, Dr. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Clearly, you have a lot on your plate. Hey, hey, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to be on the show, talk to you, and uh, hopefully share some things about what I've been doing and anesthesia, all that kind of good stuff. So first, let's just talk about your training. Where'd you go to medical school and residency? Yeah, sure. So I trained on the West Coast. Um, I'm kind of a USC lifer. So I was a biomedical engineer for undergrad at the University of Southern California, go Trojans. And then uh, I stuck around for medical school, um, left for just one winter. I was like, well, you know, I need to get away a little bit. So for internship, I went to uh, University of Michigan. So I actually caught a real winter. One was enough for me. And then I I got my butt back to Southern California where I did my residency in uh, anesthesia. And then what are you doing right now? So now I'm in private practice in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, I had the Navy pay for three years of my medical training. So after I finished my residency, uh, I went down to San Diego and I was a naval anesthesiologist for about three and a half years, had a wonderful time taking care of our servicemen and women, their families. Um, So did that for about three and a half years down uh, at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. And then... uh, we knew that it was time for us to kind of move on, move into private practice, start a family. And so 
after I finished that stint, I moved out here to the Dallas area and I've been here ever since and uh, really enjoy it out here. So what does private practice mean for an anesthesiologist? Yeah, you know, the anesthesia itself, you know, anesthesia is anesthesia, but you probably have, you know, different pressures, different uh, different processes when you're in private practice. Um, so obviously, you know, the, the stress for the anesthesiologist is that you always have to provide safe anesthesia care. Um, but when you are in a private practice setting versus maybe an academic setting where there's teaching, there's residence, there's things like that, then, um, you know, the speed of everything kind of moves up. And so you just, you have to be very efficient, still take great safe care of your patient, but do it in a very efficient manner. And you started a website. How long ago was it that you started anesthesia myth? Anesthesia myth? Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a mouth, yeah, such a, a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, started it probably like I, I believe it was 2012. Uh, it was right after I came out of came to Dallas. I was here for about a year or so, and what I saw was I had a certain subset of patients, not a large subset, but significant enough. And, and these patients would show up, let's say for elective surgery, and you know, they knew about it for a week, a couple weeks, whatever it was, and they would show up just super anxious. And so I said to myself, you know, what could I do to hopefully help alleviate some of that anxiety? And I found that talking to them, explaining to them, you know, the different risks related to anesthesia, sure, there's some risks, but for the vast majority of people, those risks are very small. And just explaining the process would have alleviated a lot of that stress and anxiety. And so I asked some of these patients, I said, hey, you know, you, you've been stressed for two weeks. What have you been doing? And they're like, well, I've been Googling, you know, these keywords, these topics, these anesthesia-related words. And so I started doing that myself. And when I saw what was out there, you know, what was popping up on the first pages of Google was kind of scary, whether it was misinformation or, you know, or forums where, you know, it was patients giving patients advice, um, just just a lot of misinformation. And so um, with a buddy of mine, you know, who's also an anesthesiologist, we said, hey, why don't we create a site where, you know, we're not trying to be uh, physicians for these patients. So it's not for patients per se, but it is for lay people. And so how can we provide anesthesia information in simple to understand language? That, that was the goal, um, just to provide that anesthesia information for people who, um, you know, might be having whatever procedure, um, and, and they're just nervous about it just to give them a little bit more reassurance about the process. So they're not getting their information from like a horror movie. <laughs> exactly. It, yeah. It's it's so difficult because, you know, in a lot of movies, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the anesthesiologist is is usually like the scummy bad guy, you know, who leaves. The <laughs> yeah, either the villain or, or you know, just the, you know, the, the, the immoral person who just, you know, just leaves in the middle of the case or, you know, doesn't care or, you know, it's just all of these bad stereotypes. And, you know, Unfortunately, there's a certain number of patients who, you know, take that to heart. And, and I've got to sit there sometimes and, and say to them, I'm not leaving the room. Uh, you know, this is not like the movies. And, and just kind of explain these different things to them. Well, if you're a good anesthesiologist, you're not memorable, right? Like if everything goes smoothly, they don't think about it at all ever again. And so it's the, it's the memorable events that end up becoming memorable, right? Become uh, 
maybe lure or end up getting shared on Facebook or something like that. Yeah, sure. And and that's probably, you know, you know, what you're getting as probably the crux of, you know, online reviews for physicians, right? Because you have, you know, a hundred great outcomes with patients, but you know, they don't bother to leave you a review unless you probably prompt them because, you know, they don't think about it. But that one person who either you rubbed the wrong way or or you know, or or something happened. Maybe you know, they're IV infiltrated. Yeah, yeah, some something like that. And then all of a sudden that's the person who's going to go online and, and, you know, let everybody know about it. So it's, it's, it's tough. You know, all physicians deal with that. It's, it's, it's part of the, uh, part of the job, unfortunately. So we, what we were going to talk about today is anesthesia myths. And I really need to enunciate that for physicians. So the, the first question is if you are with a med student and you know, they're going into something non-surgical, what is it that you want them to take away? Put another way, what are some of the myths that they might have about anesthesia that you're going to need to dispel? Sure. So, so probably as far as, um, you know, a lot of people think about going on their anesthesia rotation and probably, you know, the top thing that comes to mind is probably intubations and IVs, you know, and, and it's okay to get that experience. You know, that has its place. I would say probably one of the things that's more overlooked is, how to properly ventilate a patient, mask ventilation, because you don't necessarily need to know how to intubate a patient, but if you can mask ventilate a patient, you can keep that patient alive until help, you know, until help gets there. So, you know, whenever I've, you know, dealt with trainees who come through my OR, I've always tried to uh, emphasize that number one to them, you know, teach them how to hold a mask um, properly and properly ventilate a patient. So I, I think that, um, is is one thing that comes up and is is really important. And then you know they want to get some IV experience. Sure, that that can help intubations, all that kind of stuff. But I would say that's one thing that's maybe sometimes missed um, and by people because it, it's it's not that interesting, right? So oh, I, I got the intubation, but the mask ventilation is is probably more important, right? Because they're the likelihood that they're going to be called upon to intubate at some point pretty low, right. the likelihood that they're going to be at a code and they need to mask the patient, mm-hmm. especially during their training, is significantly higher. And, and as an ENT, you know, we, we know a bit about the airway. So I would add to that, don't underestimate the value of an oral airway. Yeah, for right? sure. If you're having trouble ver- uh, ventilating, get that tongue out of the way, put an oral airway, and it'll, it's likely to make it significantly easier for you. Absolutely. So I actually had surgery this morning. And so I asked my anesthesiologist what uh, what thoughts he would have about something like this. And he referred specifically to physicians giving clearance, right? So a primary care physician is giving clearance before surgery. And he said, a lot of times they'll say things like, well, cleared for local anesthesia or something along those lines. <laughs> he said that I think it's a little mismatch of of what's being asked. And And he said, don't tell me what to do. Tell me about the patient. And I thought that was really uh, appropriate. Because ultimately, who's giving clearance for surgery? It's the anesthesiologist, right? Because you guys are the are the gatekeepers. And if the lungs are clear to the primary care physician, but you guys hear some wheezing and asthmatic, you're you know you're going to take that clearance and and turn it right around. So I thought that was an excellent point. Tell me about tell me the patient's story. Well, they have a family history of a cardiac disease, and their last EKG was then, their last echo was then, and these were their labs. And you know I think there this is. There still have some risk, but this is as 
good as they're going to get. And then the anesthesiologist can make as informed decision as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably if you ask any anesthesiologist, that it really puts us in a bad spot if somebody um, recommends a particular type of anesthesia because it may because it may not be the the best plan for that patient. But when another physician has suggested that, especially a physician that is not an anesthesiologist, now you've already planted that seed into the patient's head, and it becomes more difficult for me to get them to buy in to the plan that I think is best. Um, so this is one of the things actually that uh, that comes up a lot. And um, what I would say is, you know, we're not looking for quote unquote clearance. What we're looking for our uh, consultant colleagues is for more information that'll help us take care of the patient. So what I would say, you know, let's say, cardiology comes up as an example quite often, right? Where, you know, we send a patient to a cardiologist. Well, what, what are we really looking for? You know, we're looking for kind of, you know, two different things. You know, what is the significance of the disease process that the patient has? Because that may impact my anesthetic. It may impact the type of anesthesia induction agents that I might choose. A patient that has a poor ejection fraction might get a different type of induction agent as somebody else. And number two, what I'm looking for is, is anything that this patient has, um, you know, within that disease process or, or for that specific organ or whatever that specialist is looking at, can anything be optimized? You know, because we're talking, if we're talking about elective surgery, you know, we'd like to know if there's anything that can be optimized prior to elective surgery. Now, if it's an emergent surgery, then all bets are off. You know, we, we have to take that risk. We do the best we can for that patient. But those are kind of the, you know, the big things, you know, that we look at. And, and when somebody recommends, you know, recommends spinal, now it puts us in a bind because now we've got to explain if we don't think that spinal is the best option, why it's not. And, and then it's tough to manage that situation in terms of, helping that referring physician to save face sure right because too, now yeah. you're putting you're 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 stuck contradicting the physician that they've had a long relationship with and you're this new person coming in who's contradicting their trusted doctor so that's yeah that that always makes it for a challenging situation for all parties yeah, for sure. There, there's a story, and I don't know if this is more lore or if it actually happened, but I, I was, I think, I don't even think I was a resident. I was a med student rotating uh, through anesthesia, and there's, you know, one of these very, very vocal and boisterous attendings, and, you know, he told a similar story of of one of his mentors, you know, who's like, you know, chair of the department or whatnot, and one of these patients gets a recommendation from, I forget what specialist, and they said recommend spinal for the anesthetic. So so the story goes that uh, this particular anesthesiologist brought the patient to the operating room, got the patient set up for a spinal, and then said, page Dr. So-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> who, who had recommended the spinal it, it, supposedly that you know that physician shows up and you know he looked at, at at that person and said you know your patient's ready for their spinal you know and sort of jaw dropping because obviously you know they weren't well equipped to place a spinal so so yeah. don't don't make those kind of recommendations um just you know we we really appreciate the, the the expertise of our of our specialist colleagues that consult for these patients it really helps us get the patient through the perioperative period you know as safely as possible um, but really those are the things that we're looking for we're looking for the significant significance of the disease process we're looking for anything that can be optimized there so we can best take care of the patient what are the risk factors what can be mitigated and what can't sure yeah yeah so so let's say you have a med student rotating with you 
And now you know they're going into a surgical specialty. So you know they're going to be on the other side of the curtain from you. Is there, aside from bag mask ventilation, is there anything that you want a future surgical colleague to know about anesthesiology? Well, what I would say is that the surgeons that I've worked with that just impress me the most, if I can put it that way, um, are the ones that understand the anesthetic implication you know, and, and what we do and how that correlates with the surgery. So, so to give you an example, I was working with a surgeon um, some time ago and, you know, got a phone call from the surgeon, very experienced uh, surgeon's been doing this for, for years and years. Um, and he says, you know, hey, Dave, we got this patient and this patient has a difficult airway. Now, you know, as an anesthesiologist, you know, okay, you know, that, that, that makes us kind of perk up trying to, you know, we got to do a little more research exactly, you know, what was difficult, et cetera. But then the surgeon said to me, now the, now the, the surgery was a hernia repair. Typically with a hernia repair, you know, we're going to paralyze and intubate a patient because we're getting intra-abdominal. Um, and, you know, when you intubate a patient, you know, difficult airway, there's, there's certain things there. So, but this surgeon said to me, says, says, Dave, he's like, I can do this case with an LMA. And what that surgeon was telling me is he understood our anesthetic. He understood that with an LMA, I don't need to paralyze a patient. Um, You know, I can slip that in without having to, you know, DL and intubate the patient. So, you know, he was giving me more options on how to safely do that anesthetic because he understood, you know, my side my side of the drape as well. And so I appreciated that tremendously because, you know, it gave us another option, um, had all the difficult airway stuff in the cart, but we were able to safely do the case with an LMA and the patient did great. And, you know, we didn't have to take on that risk of, you know, doing either an awake intubation on a patient that could be a lot more uncomfortable or, you know, going down the road of, you know, difficult intubation. So, if the patient's not paralyzed, they're still breathing, right? Mm-hmm. Is that considered general anesthesia? Like how how do you define general anesthesia versus conscious sedation versus unconscious sedation versus you know I, I think sometimes it, it gets confusing for for surgeons. Um, one thing that's confusing is what do you how do you define surgery, right? Like if sure. I'm doing ear tubes on a kid. I'm doing it in the operating room. It's technically surgery. When I'm doing it in the office, like, is that technically surgery? Is it an office procedure? Like, if I'm doing something like that on an adult? And I think basically what it comes down to is it's defined by the CPT code. And then you have some insurance companies that will put certain procedures in their surgical deductible. And so then it's the insurance company that's deciding what qualifies as surgery, right? Not any agreed upon nomenclature. So what about for anesthesia? What sure. defines the different types of anesthesia? Sure. And, you know, and it's a spectrum and, and it's, you know, it can be tough and it can be confusing because you can go from, you know, a very light sedation to a moderate sedation to a deep sedation to general anesthesia. And, you know, you can use this, the same drugs to accomplish all those things, but, but the dosing and the timing of it matters. So basically with general anesthesia, you've got somebody that is, you know, losing consciousness, they're losing their airway reflexes. Um, 
you know, that's, that's going to indicate that they're under general anesthesia. It does not necessarily mean that you're using a paralytic, um, which, you know, you'd require, typically require for an intubation, not always, but, um, you know, usually for an adult, you know, you'd, you'd be using a paralytic or something like that. But with, with LMAs, um, Typically in this country, we're not paralyzing. We're, we're using something like propofol. It works very fast. You lose the aerial reflexes. They stop breathing, right? Because, para, because propofol causes that respiratory depression, especially when you're giving it a general anesthesia type dose. Um, you know, you're able to slip in an LMA and within a couple minutes, you know, that patient is breathing on their own often. Um, so, it, it, it's kind of hard it's, it, to, to explain um, because like I said, you know, you're using the same drugs and you can, you can achieve all those different levels, but it, it's all about, you know, the dosage and the timing and you know, how often are you giving it um, and, and what exactly are you trying to accomplish? And is there, is there like a, an agreed upon, it was my impression that general anesthesia was based on the depth of anesthesia. So if the patient isn't arousable to gentle stimulation, then it's, general anesthesia and it's conscious sedation if they are arousable. So it's, so it's a question of more of, like you said, for the doses, the doses then lead to a certain amount of, of arousability, or is it more like, you know, if the patient is paralyzed? Sure. That, I mean, that, well, I mean, that, that is going to be part of it, you know, and, and like I said, with, with general anesthesia, you're getting to that point, you're getting past that point where they're arousable, where, like I said, you know, they're, they're losing their airway reflexes. They're, they're losing consciousness. Um, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to be arousable with that. Um, so, you know, that's, that's part of it. Um, but a lot of times patients and, you know, other people don't realize that, you know, the, the paralytic drugs are different than the drugs that induce anesthesia. And I wasn't thinking about bringing it up in this way, but unfortunately there was a bad outcome recently at a hospital where it didn't happen in the operating room, but a vial of vecuronium was mistaken or, or uh, yeah, a vial of Vecuronium was mistaken for Versed. Nurse thought she was giving Versed, but gave Vecuronium to a patient in a radiology suite, and that patient ended up dying, right? And what a horrible death because that patient got paralyzed, could not move, could not move a muscle, you know, basically suffocate, and yeah. they're awake the whole time because there was no sedative given. So that patient is there awake, obviously, you know, till the very end there. Um, but, you know, what, what a horrible, horrible way to go. I think that the, that's the case where the nurse is being, she was arrested for effectively a medical error. Yeah, I've heard that. That's the latest. I haven't read the latest article, but, I, but I've heard that uh, now you're dealing with an arrest and, and. Yeah, that's crossing it, a line. I know as, as, as physicians and healthcare practitioners in general that that certainly causes us all to quake a bit in our boots if uh if this is you know going to be some type of a trend right if if you're, if you're getting into errors. yeah if you're getting into criminality of it yeah. um that's 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 crossing a line um not familiar well, let's bring it back towards anesthesia yeah for sure <laughs> that's what we're talking about um so um if there are any med students listening right is there anything about your specialty that you weren't aware of until you became an attending? 
Sure. So, so there's, there's a couple of things. And, and one that I would stress, and I see this as a, you know, as kind of a myth with the specialty. And, and I got this, you know, from some of my classmates when, you know, it's kind of like you go off to, you know, you go off to third year, do all your rotations and you come back at the end of third year, beginning of fourth year. And everybody's like, Hey, what are you going into? Hey, what are you going into? You know? And when I told some of my friends, I was going into anesthesia, some of the responses I got, is like, why you, you actually can talk to people. So, so, <laughs> so one of the, one of the myths is that, you know, if you're an anesthesiologist, you don't need good communication skills. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. You have a very short amount of time to gain the confidence and trust of that patient. So I would say that you need excellent communication skills to be a good anesthesiologist. So that's something that some, excuse me, sometimes medical students or other people don't realize about the field. Number two, I would say uh, the human body is very resilient. If you're doing this long enough, uh, you know, you see that, you recognize that. Um, but I would say the other thing, and it kind of goes back to the communication and the soft skills. Once, once you're competent, you know, as an anesthesiologist, you've gone through your training, you've gone through your boards, you're competent. These soft skills really take over and are really essential. You know, how are you able to deal with different surgeon personalities? How are you able to be a good consultant from them? You know, are you able to, um, you know, talk to them if there's, if, you know, if there's a cancellation, are you able to talk to them in a manner where, you know, you make them understand that this is something that is best for the patient. So you're not only looking out for the patient, but you're also looking out for the surgeon because if there's a bad outcome, now everybody is involved in that. You know, how are you able to, to do that, navigate with hospital, with, you know, OR charge nurses? Are you able to, are you definitely you know, maneuver and, you know, work out the OR workflows, a lot of these soft skills really become important to, you know, safely take care of patients and then, you know, be efficient um, with that OR throughput. So those are some things that probably, you know, don't get realized, you know, by med students when, you know, when they're first looking at the field. If, uh, if rapport isn't for you, then, don't go into a specialty where you have to rapidly build rapport with someone so that they trust you with their life. Absolutely. Okay. Um, are there any other myths about your field that you find doctors believing that you want to discuss? You know, I think that covers it pretty good. Um, then let's talk about Doctors Unbound. Yeah. So so Doctors Unbound is... Uh, is this podcast that I've been doing for about, oh, 16 months now. And it was, it was a little bit of scratching my own itch. You know, I, I wanted to highlight physicians like you were talking about earlier who are doing these really interesting, cool things, you know, outside of their typical clinical practice. You know, I'd met some of these physicians, uh, you know, I'd been impressed with them. I learned from them and I thought to myself, man, I, I just wish there was, you know, something out there where, you know, we can learn from each other. Um, we can help each other out, build this community. And, you know, I, I just was so impressed that there's doctors doing awesome things. You know, there, there's people out there who are financial bloggers who are really impacting, you know, the finances of physicians. There are people out there that have decided to step into the political arena and with how divisive our politics are these days, I'm seeing more and more physicians on both sides of the aisle doing that. And I think that's important because we need, physicians who care, who are knowledgeable to be out there affecting policy on a local, state, and national level. So 
it's just really cool to see these physicians that have mastered, you know, medicine, but then also have ventured out and are doing these really awesome things. So I get to talk to them at Doctors Unbound, a podcast that I put out every week, every Monday, there's a fresh new episode. And, you know, an episode will last anywhere from about 20 to 45 minutes. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about whatever the expertise that physician is, you know, has. And then, you know, we, we did, we also do some learning points, some takeaway points for the audience as well. So, um, it's been tremendous for me. Uh, I tend to pick up two or three things from, from each guest that I have on, uh, you've been on the podcast. So thank you very much. I, I really want to, to thank you publicly for coming on, learned, learned a lot from you as well. And, um, it's, it's been just a tremendous growth for me personally and, and being able to put it out there to the physician community. Well, clearly I highly recommend that episode, but that, and, and the other episodes, where, where can people find you online? Where can people find the podcast and where can people find anesthesia myths? Sure. So, so the podcast is, uh, is doctors unbound and it's just at doctorsunbound.com. What you'll find there is for every episode, there is a, a blog post or show notes, if you will. And what that includes is um, the podcast player. So for so if, if you don't listen to podcasts any other way, there's an embedded podcast player right there where you can listen to the episode. I have highlights of the episode and then I actually include transcripts. So full transcripts of every episode because some people would rather read than listen. So all of that is available there. But you can find the podcast if you, if you listen to podcasts regularly, like many of your listeners obviously do, you can find it on your favorite podcatcher, whether that's you know, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or something else, and just search for Doctors Unbound, U-N-B-O-U-N-D, um, and you'll find it there. And I would appreciate it if you listen, subscribe, and, um, you know, if there's, there's any topics that you like or you want to give me some feedback, I'm, I'm always happy to hear that. And then Anesthesia Myths is anesthesiamyths.com? Yep, anesthesiamyths.com. Now, that's both sites, but that site especially needs needs a redesign. And so, like you said, we, we started that site in, uh, in 2012. It's, it's now just me. It's, it's a, it's a solo thing now. So, um, the great thing about some of this anesthesia content is that it's evergreen. So once you put up a blog post about anesthesia, general anesthesia side effects, there's, there's not a whole lot that changes. So, so that was the beauty of it, but it's, it's in need of a redesign that's in the works right now. So if you go there, it's not going to look so pretty. (laughs) It's going to look prettier soon. Um, but, uh, check it out. If you have any patients that have, uh, you know, interest in learning about different anesthesia topics, we cover stuff from general anesthesia to labor epidurals, to spinals, to regional anesthesia blocks, all that kind of stuff is covered there. Um, so go ahead and check it out. And I would say one more thing, if you're a physician that is either an anesthesiologist or maybe a surgical subspecialist or something like that, and you would like to write for it, like, Hey, you know, you, you want to write about a specific topic, you know, that is you know, somehow related to anesthesia, you know, contact me, um, in, in any way. And, uh, you know, you can, you know, you could put a, a post on there and I'd be happy to give you credit obviously, and link back to either, you know, your website or your social media profile or, or wherever you would like that link back. So if somebody's looking to, to contribute that way, I'd be happy to collaborate. Sounds fantastic. I look forward to looking at the redesign. And then maybe when you do that, you could, I guess, take down the articles about ether. (laughs) Yeah, man, it's funny. I had a patient not too long ago and uh, they were telling me that, you know, they had ether way back when they were a kid. And I was like, man, we don't, we don't train on that anymore. We don't train on halothane. We don't train on ether anymore. (laughs) That's, that's a long time. 
I think halothane might have been on one of my steps at some point. And I'm not, you know, I guess I, I finished medical school in 2006. So, uh, but I think it had been, it hadn't been used anymore yet. They hadn't updated the exam yet. No, we, we I haven't seen it in my training. The the, the one helotane story I have is uh, I was in Iraq as a, as a naval anesthesiologist, and we were there doing a case on base, and um, some of the guys pulled out something called a draw over vaporizer, which is the first time I saw that, and looked on there. It, it said helotane. It, it, you know, you were supposed to put helotane in there, but uh, but we used isofluorine, which is kind of has some similar properties, and we did a case with that just because we thought we might need to be mobile in a war environment and that was one of the options that we would have so we, you know there's like three anesthesiologists that say all right we're going to do a case with this with this more mobile draw over vaporizer um so so that's that's the only that's the closest i got to halothane we, we, we actually did it. it was labeled halothane it was, it was, lab- like- it was labeled exactly <laughs> that's that's it <laughs> all right well dr david jagrinas thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us i've learned a lot and it's been a fun conversation hey thank you so much it's been my pleasure to be on the show that was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. We can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. Our show is produced by Guilfree Studios in New York City. You can find them at guilfreestudios.com. Our theme music was written by our show's producer, voice actor, Karin Guilfree.